so man let's dive right in right when we started right when i came in here because you and i've known each other for like 20 years we just started in we're, we're at the offices of what is now pledge music which mm -hmm. i've used on a few occasions to great results and we we're just talking about how in a lot of ways it's so much easier than it used to be and and then you were talking about how oh yeah getting anything done back then it at the in the record co companies it was like making a souffle in a car and i said <laughs> yeah with three people huffing on a stolen nitrous tank the windows closed yeah but the funny thing is you popped out with that as if you've actually had that experience with that concerned me. It just flew right out. Like, you know. I haven't had that experience. No, no, no. no that I've didn't heard happen. of that experience. We didn't steal the nitrous tank. <laughs> it was just there. It was just there. When it was we a got rental. It, it, it happened a, to be in the car. It it's rental. like one of those, you know, exactly. the Michael Bolton CD that someone left in there. It wasn't mine. Exactly. So. It wasn't mine. Oh, my God. But um, I was checking out. Um, I checked out the Stewie Levine. The I Stuart guess. Levine one. Wasn't Something that ridiculous? Was really great. Really, really great. great. And I didn't even know Stuart. Like, I didn't know about him even. Oh, really? I, mean, I kind of knew. I mean, I know the music he produced, obviously, and I know, but I didn't know that he was the producer. I didn't all, and all those stories, man. I mean, that was like. No, he's the real. I mean, I, I related a lot to it because he and I have a, they're a similar trajectory in terms of the kind of, you know, coming from being a player and a lot yeah. of that kind of stuff. But yeah. he was, you know, 20 years before me. Yeah, because you yeah. did start out, I think, Trump, yeah. trumpet yeah, player, right? Yeah, I started right? as a trumpet player. I mean, I was, I grew up in suburban Detroit and was a mu was a musician. You know, I was always a record fan and always, you know, music was my life and all that. But I started, I actually started on oboe. Oh, that was a smart yeah. switch. And, uh, See, well, you've, my, made, you've made <clears throat> smarter and smarter transitions I, I, yeah, every time. <laughs> well, there were a couple of dips where they were not the best transitions. But, no, I mean, my, my father's a musician, was a jazz piano player and he played with Cannibal Adderley and Neil Hefner. Oh, get out of here. And, oh, wow, and, I didn't know that. But he became an educator in Detroit in Detroit, Dearborn, Michigan, actually. Okay. He, was a, uh, he played, he had a trio in Detroit for a long time, a trio down at the Playboy Club in Detroit. And he, But he was a, mainly a band director and also a great jazz educator. Mm -hmm. um, so we all had to play music, but he wanted us all to be classical musicians. So my sister, <laughs> I'm the youngest of four. <laughs> my oldest sister is a violist and a conductor, runs the Flume Institute of Music. Oh, man, get out of here. I my second that. sister is a violinist, assistant concertmaster in the Jacksonville Symphony. She's a badass violinist. Whoa. My brother was the best tuba player in the state. He ended up becoming a lawyer, smart, wisely. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> the transition from tuba to tuba lawyer. Tuba to lawyer. It's that's a little a more drastic deep, than the transition a, from oboe yeah, to Yeah, that's a deep one. But, but I started on oboe because it was like, there were a lot of great oboe players. And I played for like a year and a half. I was starting to make my own reeds and all that. But um, with stories, I came home one day and my dad had these couple of jazz 45s. MRC made these little LP things back in the late, early 60s, whenever it was. And there was one of Clifford Brown with Jordu and Joy Spring mm, and all that mm, stuff. Yeah. Dawood. And I had my my little play, record player where I'd listen to all my old Motown 45s. And I picked up this one of Jordu, of, of Joy Spring, and I put it on there. And I said, oh, jazz, it's cool. And I put it on I can't. I have it somewhere. It might have been a thirty-three, and I had to switch the, you know. But yeah, those I remember those are forty-five. <clears> so yeah, and you there played were, at thirty-three. So they yeah, could and there were songs. two songs on each side. Right, right. So I put on Joy Spring, and I heard Clifford Brown, and I just died. Mm. It was like I had never heard. I didn't know music could be this way. I didn't know sound could affect me this way. I didn't know. And my dad had been a trumpet player as well, and there was this trumpet in the closet, this Reynolds medalist student model trumpet. So I went and picked up the trumpet, tried pulling out the record like 11, 12 years old. And I could get a sound out of it because I was an oboe player, mm -hmm. and I was just trying to figure out, and I go, oh, so, and I looked at it and said, oh, well, obviously this 
what you know this lowers it a half a step this lowers it a full yeah, step this lowers yeah. a step and a half this will lower it so i started playing with it and i'm going this is it my dad got home from school and i said dad come here come here come here check this out and i, and I go check out look at this and it's like he didn't know what what the record was you know and i go dad look listen check this out and he goes oh my god here it is and i put on joy spring and and he's got this has puts his head down he just knows exactly where this is going and i go dad i gotta play trumpet i gotta switch instruments he's like you know matthew well, Matthew, you're going to have to, you know, understand that uh, there aren't a lot of great oboe players out there and a lot of trumpet players, and damn, I have to do this. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'll let you do it, but you have to play legit. Yeah, if you, you can play jazz, but you have to study legit. Right, right. So I switched to trumpet and was studying with, you know, Armando Gatala at University of Michigan. Who oh, was wow. Great, and, and with Don Green, who was the principal in Detroit Symphony. And I got really serious. Um, I wasn't, and I've gotten all the Ulster bands and the stuff, and I got a scholarship to go to the University of Miami. As a, as a right, I remember that. And I yeah, and I, I wanted to. Tell me about that. I, my goal was to be a professional trumpet player. I wanted to be Jerry Hay. Is what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a lead player in, set, in mm -hmm. sessions. But um, you were that age. Yeah, and and I still want to be Jerry Hay. <laughs> I mean, he's one of my all-time heroes who influenced me in ways that are beyond discussion. Not just as a trumpet player, mm -hmm. but hit the arranging, the approach to a recording, the function of, of the horn section or any element in a recording mm -hmm. as glue for a groove, all this other shit I learned from checking out Jerry. But anyway, I, so I went to Miami and became a player and was to be, become a player. But, you know, eventually it was really competitive um, and, one, and, and it was an incredible school. And I learned so much about music and about recording and about you name it. Some of it not from the most direct, um, in the most direct ways. Right, right. Most of my, my most important experiences in college were mainly hanging out with players. I was the record guy. I was mm -hmm. the guy who had the huge record collections. Um, I just, from the very beginning, started collecting right, everything. Right, You know, from the first stuff I listened to, which was Motown and Stevie, mm -hmm. and then finally, oh, it's so funny, one of my best friends growing up was this guy named Eric White, who ended up changing his name to Eric Foster White. And he's a per guy, a trombone player with perfect pitch who ended up a pop, being a pop songwriter and wrote all of Britney Spears' early days. Oh, wow. Did but he write Oops, I Did It Again? He wrote, I don't know if he wrote Oops, he wrote... Um, That's a good song. Hit me, I think he wrote Hit Me Baby. Oh, wow. Um, Hit his bank he, account a lot more times. Yeah, and he did, you know, My Name's Not Susan for Whitney Houston and a bunch of other stuff. Mm. And he did. He created, like, kind of that group called High Five. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he and I grew up together. And we'd listen to Steely Dan and... Earth, Wind, and Fire, and um, Tower of Power, and that kind of stuff. And then I had groups of musicians that I hung out with from Detroit, Detroit, and hit me to P-Funk, and Marvin Gaye, and Al mm, Green, mm. and Bill Withers, and that kind of shit. And then studying classical music, I'd listen to a lot of Bach, and studying Telemann and Hummel trumpet concertos, and Maurice Andre, and mm. Philadelphia Orchestra, you know. Gil Johnson, the, lead, the principal trumpet in Philadelphia Orchestra, ended up teaching, being my teacher down at Miami. Oh, man. So, like, each of these things kind of got, got me going. And yeah. So once I got to Miami, I, had, I was just trying to suck in every possible kind of music. And, and all of the experiences all kind of added up to me saying, you know, obviously I, I, should, I should get in the business. Mm, mm. You know. And, I'm you so know, no, no, out. it's great. I mean, a, a kind of a... a consistent refrain in all of these uh we don't call them interviews we just call them conversations because that's really what they are you know with people we know <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. that are in the quote-unquote industry however you want to say it uh -huh. and their perspective is that generally you know you start out as a musician because it is such a 
bizarre and uh, non-linear way, not only of making a living, but of, of a lifestyle. And the way that you get from point A to point B often involves mm. lots of very circuitous routes oh and lots of people that you would never, ever come into contact with otherwise. It, it's the, the most um, like experiential uh, experientially kind of widening life you can mm-hmm, lead mm-hmm. because it will take you to far flung places and you will meet people that you would never meet in another more linear course of life. Oh, and so, you know, it's this is this is a, a recurring <clears throat> theme in these where, you know, you have people say, well, when I started out, what I really wanted to do <laughs> was this. Then for one reason or another, you realize, well, maybe I, I was a good enough musician, but I just started to get excited about this aspect of music. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. then I pulled and then I met this guy or this gal mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. I went here and this, that. So explain to me like how this happened from you becoming a, a trumpet player to ending up being a, you know, A&R guy at Blue Note, right. and then well, Warner Brothers, and et cetera, et cetera, and then producing all well, the records that you produced. What happened was, I mean, when I was in Miami, I, I, my plan was to be a, jazz, a trumpet player. And I was studying, it's funny, I was the guy who would, I mean, I'd transcribe Jerry, Jerry Hayes' trumpet arrangements and play lead in a lot of bands. I was mainly a lead player. Mm-hmm. I had, from the beginning, I always had a really solid high G. Like I had right, always, coming from the classical kind of Yeah, I had, well, I always had a natural embouchure. Might have come from starting on oboe. But I always could really play around the horn mm-hmm. and and had listened and played to played and listened to a lot of music. So I was kind of a jack of all trades as a trumpet player. Although I spent a lot of time transcribing Woody Shaw solos and learning them in a couple of keys and I you know, studying Clifford Brown and I could get around the horn playing bebop and, and post bop and any of that and Kenny Wheeler and Andy Brecker and a lot of players. I never had the either dedication or possibly the this talent to be a real improviser. I could always take a solo in a big band, you know, and I could always, I played a lot of big band gigs. And Latin gigs, I could always play a great solo on a Latin uh-huh. tune, on a salsa tune, because there were like one or two changes, and I knew that la- the language I could tell. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have the inventiveness. So I knew, that's why I, I te- keyed in on, like, Jerry Hay. I wanted to be a session player, because, mm-hmm. and I'd study that. And um, and part of, you know, one of the biggest influences on me as a producer was the guy, Whit Seidner, who ran the concert jazz band introduced in Miami. He ran the jazz program, but he directed the concert jazz band, and I had the luck of playing in the concert jazz band for a couple of years, and ridiculous college band. And the thing about it was the elements of playing part of I They usually played split lead or second in that band. Um, this guy named Luis Aquino played lead, who ended up playing with Tito Puente and you name it in the Latin world. Ridiculous Latin player from mm. Puerto Rico. Anyway, <clears throat> the one thing was pitch, this incredible, this was a band that the pitch was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And Witt was really harping on pitch, and he had this ridiculous ears where everyone in the band, he could hear exactly where on any note someone was. And when pitch locks in, everything works. Okay, it's like when shit's in tune, the pocket feels better. Oh, yeah. The fo- oh, yeah, your totally. focus goes yeah. to the lyric and the story, this, all this stuff. Yeah. So pitch became extremely important to me as a trumpet player, and as a listener. Um, and then time. And not just pocket, mm-hmm. but knowing that every note has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. And each of those determines the feel. And the end of the note is as important or potentially more important than the front of the note. Mm-hmm. You, when you, you know, cutoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The life of a note, the body of the note, is there a shape to that note? Is there life in that note? 
And how does that note get to the next note? And how does that tell a story? Mm. You know, turning this technical shit about music into something that's truly emotional. And that's what locked it, I locked in on. Part of it also because the artists that I was always listening to and influenced by and the music I loved, which is a very diverse palette, what held them all together was that emotional thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, after playing professionally for a lot of years, I went to Miami. I was there a total of six years. I finally got my degree. I went part-time at the end because I was not only kind of flaky as a student, but I was playing a lot. Um, I started working at Peaches Records and records and tapes mm -hmm. in Miami. Yeah. And I, I ended up becoming the head buyer there. I really got it because I was a... So this is, when is this? <clears throat> this is 1986-ish. Okay. Um, and I started working at Peaches because part of it was I wanted to start saying no to some gigs because mm -hmm. I was working a lot as a player, but I was saying yes to a lot of shitty gigs. I had been leading club date bands and playing bad big band gigs and playing salsa gigs where there'd be a night where I'd have three sets with three different bands going to 4 a.m., you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure, it for was sure. Insane. And it was great to get the calls, but, you know, I was just, you know, wanting to say no to some, and I was a huge record collector and fan, and I wanted to start getting more records, and I could get them at cost, and I could get promos. Mm. So I started working at Peaches, and one of the greatest days was this, I became a Billboard reporter, which at that time, pre-SoundScan, they would just call sample stores and you'd tell them your top sellers in order. Mm -hmm. And they'd add that up and that's what would determine what the charts were. Oh, So back you could then, really yeah. work the charts. Oh, you could, yeah. So um, I'd get calls from Brian Backus at Polygram. Brian, still yeah, friends. yeah, sure. Um, Neil Sapper and like all these guys I still know. <clears throat> and, um, and there's this one day on the PA, it's like, Matt, Charlie Hayden on line two. Really? I go, get the fuck, you're kidding, right? Pick up the phone and goes, Hey, man, how you doing, man? What's going on, man? I'm like, hello? He goes, hey, it's Charlie, man. Thank you so much for reporting my Quartet West record, man. And I talked to him for like an hour. Really? And it was like Ornette and Liberation Music Orchestra and all this shit that I was so into. And, the, you know, Keith and like you name it were like talking. I'm going, oh, my God, Charlie Hayden's talking to me. And <clears throat> it was thanks to doing this retail thing, but it got me pulled in and hooked a little bit. Right, right. <clears throat> and so anyway, what ended up happening was I got to know a lot of people in the business that way. Um, because I had done radio, I had a radio show at UWVOM when I was in college. Mm. I had obviously been a musician. I had been in recording studios as a player. I didn't know my way around a studio much, but I knew how it kind of worked. I knew a lot of records. Mm. I knew a lot mm. of the history of the business. Um, it was like I, I, I I gotta get and, and also there was a, right, the turning point was I remember being on a gig on Miami Beach like it was a good show it was like Ben Vereen or something and I'm sitting in this trumpet section and next to me I was 25 I guess next to me a guy who's 45 and I'm and he's playing lead or something I'm going 20 years I'm gonna be one seat over that's my future right 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 and I, right I mean, you know I'm already playing Ben Vereen on Miami Beach when I'm 45 yeah well I mean and, and that's the thing either you and, and that's where you get into that thing about like what kind of there are certain people I know who are drummers who have the best pocket I've ever heard um, they play the right little fill when it's needed they're just fantastic song oriented drummers and that that's an art and mm -hmm. a craft but you have to have that kind of affinity. You have to have an affinity for that 
and you you have to understand that that's the trajectory mm -hmm. of it and there aren't a lot of people think they have an affinity for that you'll hear like a jazz drummer <clears throat> want to like play like his funk beat or like mm -hmm. his version of what he thinks is a john bonham thing or, yeah, yeah. or she or a, or a like a levon helm thing and it's like no I'm sorry, it's an entire, you have to have an affinity for that. And some people do. And you can have people like Jim Keltner who are mm -hmm. like perfectly positioned in both those worlds, mm -hmm. really, as, mm -hmm. as a, a great, uh, you know, um, orchestrator mm -hmm. and as a, an improviser as well mm -hmm. in, in that thing, you know. But yeah, and I understand what you're talking about in terms of like, yeah, you're looking over and seeing the guy and like be having that moment of like, well, this is not, this is well, not for me. And also know? having, you know, been. A big fan of real jazz. I mean, I grew up like I said, Clifford's line mm -hmm. jazz. Sure. And, and as a trumpet player, I mean, I bowed at the altar of Woody Shaw and Booker Little and and Kenny Wheeler and and I mean, all Lee Morgan and all these guys and transcribed the solos and found that I couldn't do that for a living, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I could play lead. And finally, I just said, you know, I've got skills beyond this, you know. And I, being the jack of all trades thing. I knew a lot about music. I knew a lot about the business, and and there were a couple of things that kind of drove me towards it. A couple of events, and it was like I want to go to New York. And mm -hmm. when I moved to New York in '88, I was it was a combination. I wanted to be a player. I mean, when I first got to New York, I was subbing on Broadway a bit, and I played Hulu Iglesias at Wrigley City and a bunch of stuff. And uh, and my but I moved up. The only job I had was to work in the cassette department at Tower Records. Department at Tower Records. Up the at one on West Fourth. Oh, on that one up yeah, there. In the yeah, 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 yeah. Oh boy, cassette okay. department. And I had been the head buyer at Peaches in South Miami. I moved up and got a gig at the cassette department, making five bucks an hour or whatever. But within six weeks, I, I moved up. Note knowing, one note: This is New York City, and you were making five dollars an hour in nineteen eighty-eight. Today, well, you may make ten dollars exactly, if that job exists. Yet, <laughs> exactly. you will not be living anywhere in the in the confines of Manhattan, nor well, will you even be living anywhere <laughs> in a close Brooklyn or Queens. You will be well, living essentially. You might as well just live in Miami and commute. exactly. Well, <laughs> the, thing, the funny thing about it was when I my last year in Miami, I probably made sixty grand. Wow. Okay, I fifty grand just sorry. gigging and the, between and the gig. pitches and gigs. I was working a lot. I was playing five nights a week in a top 40 band. I was doing some recording sessions. I was working at Peaches. Yeah. I was um, doing some trumpet teaching. I was working for BMI as a logger. So on my free nights, I would go out to clubs because I had yeah. my music. I'd be a logger and fill in, find yeah. reports for BMI to bus people for not paying license fees. Yeah, but this is interesting because I think with the person that you are, this is also the, you know, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, but you still, you're doing the same thing you were doing then. You still have your hands in a million different yeah, things, yeah. and you're trying to figure out which is well, what, what kind you of need gig, to do. What kind of know? gig is going to be the right thing for me? And I finally decided that I want to be a record producer. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to be an independent producer. I wanted to work within the system. And there were two places that I knew I wanted to be. One was Blue Note Records, mm. and I wanted to work with Bruce Lundahl. Bruce. Yes. And what happened was, when I remember when I was first playing trumpet, my father bought me a record called Clifford Brown, The Beginning and the End. And it was on Columbia Records. And on the back, there were li these liner note by a guy named Bruce Lundvall, mm. who was VP of Marketing, I believe it was. And somehow, it's, I, I, when I found out about Bruce later, I go, I remember that name. What do I know that from? And then I realized, because when I had my first meeting with Bruce, he had the original painting from the cover of that album on his wall. Oh, Clifford. wow. Wow. And I went, oh, my God, this is that guy. 
who was, I, I remember thinking, there's this marketing guy who loves jazz, how cool, right? Yeah. But, um, uh, so anyway, I wanted to work with Bruce Lumball because I knew his career and I loved the Electro Musician label back mm -hmm. then because of those, the vinyl, the vinyl with the interviews, there was a Woody Shaw interview and there's that famous Bud Powell and her fires with the interview where, are there any piano players you really like? Al Haig's great. It's like, oh, yeah, right. but are there any when you really, I said Al Haig. It's yeah. like this classic yeah, funny. interview. So anyway, I, I knew who Bruce was. And then I loved Warner Brothers Records. Mm. And I knew who Mo Austin was. And I kind of knew about Mo, having been a guy who was at Verve and was a jazz guy, but he was an accountant. And then he worked with right. Sinatra and created reprise records and then signed Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. I go, that's my guy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, well, and there's I, continuity and, and there's that. And you're know. looking at the records that you love. Sure, and to sure. me, also, Blue Note was Blue Note. Well, and yeah. Warner Brothers was Warner. I like those were... So anyway, I had a line on a gig to be a promotion assistant for Susan Levan at Blue Note. Mm. And um, I moved up, and within six weeks, the gig opened up, and I went, and I was making seventeen five a year. This is in the 80s. dollars yeah. And it was, you know, a third of what I made my last year in Miami. And I got a, a little shitty apartment on 103rd near, you know, between Manhattan and Central Park West. And sure. At that time, it was oh, yeah. literally across from a crack house. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, It yeah. was nuts, that neighborhood. It was, but it was an apartment, and it was sharing with this drummer named Mo Roberts, um, who was playing a lot of gigs and stuff, and he was this friend of Graham. I think I got to know through Graham Hawthorne or some other musician mm. I went to school with. Anyway, I get this shitty little apartment, and I'd start working at Blue Note. Right. And I was a promotion assistant, so I'd be answering the phone and stuff and envelopes and stuff, but... From the very beginning, I hit it off well with Bruce. Bruce mm -hmm. wanted me in because he knew I was a musician and all that. Yeah. And uh, so I started, he started sending me out to go check out bands. He'd give me tapes, demos to listen to and give him feedback. And eventually I was able to sign some artists and produce some records there. Um, yeah. And Michael Cascuna also was very, very, <clears throat> those were my two, the double-headed right. master um, there that in terms of my mentors it's interesting <clears throat> for the people who do not know Bruce Lundvall um, well Lon how are you <laughs> exactly well Charlie what are we doing <laughs> <laughs> and I and I mean that excellent was, that was that was my introduction to you know what was my introduction to big kind of corporate music because I had been in this group disposable heroes of hypocrisy and I was really just a fly on the wall but I, but I got to see firsthand how the machinery worked and mm -hmm. I got to understand what I did not want to do <clears throat> and um, Bruce you know you know I come from Berkeley California so immediately you come up with the whole idea of like beware the running dog of capitalism and, <laughs> right. you know and everything is like you know you're you're you know the young Spartacus worker and all this all stuff right. so so I was instantly wary of any corporate anything and blah 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 blah, blah. And, you know, Bruce was, for me, uh, it was a great experience. And, like, I remember you at one point, we were, guy, I didn't know who to sign with. Is it mm -hmm. going to be, it was between you, between Warner Brothers, where you were the mm -hmm. A&R guy, and between Bruce. And I decided. You son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> and we got stuck with T.J. Kirk. Exactly. And you went over the... <laughs> I'm going to tell Not stuck guy. with, I love T.J. Kirk. No. But, but I wanted Charlie so, Hunter, too. <laughs> so we, we, I went with Bruce Lundvall, and I think I'm lucky that I did. I don't think I would have lasted at Warner brothers because i could have protected you for a while and, yeah. and warner was actually warner was a fantastic label you would have been very happy there but what being a blue note brought you as an artist was right. extremely important yeah because bruce just knew like okay this crazy kid and his crazy friends they're good and they got people coming to their gigs and they're young people that are coming to their gigs mm -hmm. and basically 
I have nothing but great feelings for Bruce, you know, mm-hmm. and for his kind of um, shepherding of me. The other side of that is, is that that system is inherently flawed. The relationship between the artist and the record label is an inherently flawed system, regardless of the people that are manning either side of it. And so, basically, when you go into it, even if you have a guy like Bruce Lundvall, who really is pretty much, I would say, 90% good intentions, which is you don't find in a lot of people, but he essentially is working on the wrong side. Well, actually, he's 100% good intentions, and that's his problem. Oh, got you, got you. Well, well you know, in that, in that right, system. Right. This is not to criticize Bruce. This right. is to say, sure. that's part of the challenge that sure. never could really Exactly. So. You say yes more times than he, yeah, you, you should, you yeah, should no, say he, yes. I was the one down the hall. After that he said no. yes to someone. You'd have to say He no. says to Ralph Peterson, yes, you can have a full-page ad in Modern Drummer magazine. And Ralph comes down to me and goes, Bruce said I could get a full-page ad. I go, well, what he meant to say was, if within the budget we can find a justification right. for it. You know, it's like, right, exactly. You, you know, have to do that whole Yeah, which is fine. Thing. I mean, I yeah, loved it. Yeah, it was a fantastic yeah. Sure, sure. But, but no, but, you know, my whole thing was just like, it is akin to, you know, a sharecropper, essentially, if you're a musician. You know, and and but you know I, I you know I understand that you 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 can you can give me the, the we're going to go back to 15 20 years and you, we're going to do pro and con I'm going to be the musician and you're going to be the producer guy because now all of that is done it's like well, the, we're we're all past that here's, here's, but from my experience I I felt like and I know musicians who did not have this attitude but I worked really really hard to make sure that I dotted all my I's and I crossed all my T's. I was always on the road. I was promoting everything. I was making sure mm-hmm. that I was everywhere I was supposed to be all the time. I went the extra mile. I did all the <clears throat> And I was always so incredibly disappointed when I would come to Blue Note and I would just see really shoddy workmanship and I would see stuff that was incompetent, that wasn't being done. And I would see really simple things falling by the wayside, like just... Basic accounting, paying the wrong well, guy three thousand dollars for a session. The guy cashes the check, look, and then you, you know what I'm saying. Okay, here, here's the thing. Now you come on, come we with could, it. We could we could talk for days about the record industry and what it was and what it meant was meant to be, what it became, right. what it should have become, what it decided sure, not to become, sure. the re- way it shot itself <clears> in the foot by suing its own because consumers like all yeah, this yeah, kind yeah. of shit, right? Sure. The reality is... I think you and I are probably me, total in total agreement oh, on no, all of that stuff no, no, we, anyway. We, at this point. Yeah, yeah. About, okay. And, and, and the thing is that we didn't know each other as well back then and didn't have these conversations then. Right. I was, you know, the reason that I made a decision, first of all, to get in the industry, was because I wanted, I felt the change comes from within. Mm-hmm. And that there is this, I'm not, I can't make a change from outside of it. It's like being a politician. I'm going to run for office and right. change. Right. And work within this flawed system. I had to run for office and get the gig. And I got yeah, the yeah, gig yeah. at Blue Note. And that was, you know, Congress. That was sure, the House of Representatives. Sure. Yeah, and I had opportunity yeah. to be a senator and go to Warner Brothers. Absolutely. So yeah, to yeah, me, a senator. I, I was like, you know, <laughs> and in the end, they tripled my salary. But I mean, well, hey, the, the point, the, but most importantly, when I was at Blue Note, my point was I want to figure out how this business works. How does this machine work? And how is it supposed to happen? I had had experience in retail, radio, as a musician, yeah. uh, touring. I knew all those elements of that, and I incorporated that into an inside-the-record-company experience where I grew to understand how these pieces work together. What's a marketing plan look like? What's a recording budget look like? What's a P&L look like? Mm-hmm. So what is, you know, if you got to create a P&L, 
mm-hmm. which everyone has to do in everything they ever do. Sure. sure. Money goes out, how's more yeah. money going to Except come back they in. call mine an L and L. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just call it an L. <laughs> just an L. Just, it's just L. one big L with a column. Anyone can figure it out. Yeah, I call it a, And the bright red ink, you can it's I very easy it, to read. I call it an F. <laughs> <laughs> but the the uh, it's okay. You can once, curse as much as you want because we have an explicit advice okay, on iTunes. Fuck on yeah. Okay. So so the, the the thing was that I decided I made that decision to make a deal with them. Whatever. Right. And I learned from what I learned from Bruce and Michael uh, was invaluable. I mean mm. the things, but the things I learned from Bruce, which had to do with return every call, like this fucking phone call. Let me tell you something. Some people are not returning my calls now. Mm-hmm. I can call Quincy Jones. He'll call me back in forty eight hours right. today. Right. Okay. Right. I'm not bragging. I'm not saying we're friends. Yeah, we're that's, not. That's his. That's Mo Austin his, will yeah, call yeah. me back. Okay. Because um, that's their code. That's their code, yeah. and that's that's respect. Right. And right. Mo, I know I'm not going to call Mo or Quincy unless I have something important to talk exactly, about. Exactly. And they course. know I'm not going to call unless it's something right. important. It's a continuum. But that returning of those calls, motherfuckers, the labels now. I got people who. Weren't even my competition in the day, right. and don't know shit about making a right. goddamn record, right. and they won't call me back or return a fucking email. Yeah, how hard is it to send? Sorry, I'm busy. I'll get back to you. Yeah, yeah. Or, or no thanks. Or go to hell. Yeah, <laughs> fuck you. Go ahead and say exactly. it, but return it. I know. I know. I'm, you know, I know. I'm not seriously saying I'm that person. It's like, yeah. but I'm somebody. Yeah. I mean, I. You know, one of the funny things is like Bruce is like, listen to every tape. Every unsolicited demo I'd listen to. Wow. Every wow. one of them. Wow. And there was this one day I remember sitting there by my desk and there was a box. Because he was Bruce Lundvall. Right, sure. So he would get a lot of shit. Oh, yeah. And he everything he listened to that was from someone he knew, he'd make a comment on it and send it down to me to then listen to it. So I was right. listening to everything. Yeah. And so I worked, you know, 80 hours a week. I yeah. was there every night. Yeah. Um, listening to tapes and all this yeah. stuff. And trying to know I'm going to produce records and whatever. So um, that respect was always extremely important. Yeah. So I learned that from him. But uh, anyway, back to the real subject. Once the reason that I had the I had the opportunity to go to Warner Brothers, which is thanks to Tyler Puma and Russ Teitelman, you know, I was able to get to know Warner, and I was flown out there, and I got an interview with Mullen sure. Lenny, and had an opportunity because Tommy had left the company, went to work at Electra. Um, or God, yeah, went to Electra, and then he went over to Verve, <clears throat> but um. I had an opportunity to meet to work with the other heroes in the business, and the main point was, Mo wanted me to do A and R, right. A and R staff producer, right? Which makes sense. Which is what I wanted to do all along. Yeah. I had been head of marketing in A and R at Blue Note, so I'd done all the marketing stuff, and I'm like, now I can just put all that experience to work and just focus on making records. And what I found I had going for me was that I had been a musician. I could communicate with musicians. I knew all the, but I also knew how to work it through the system. So right. I, I was kind of built to be an A and R guy. And a producer. Mm-hmm. So once I got the gig at Blue Note, I go into my, at Warner Brothers, I went into the first day in our meeting there, okay? And I'm sitting at a table with Russ Teitelman, Ted Templeman, you know who Ted Templeman is? Of course, yeah. Okay. Van Halen. Okay. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, uh, Doobie Brothers, Doobie Van Brothers. Halen. He was Harper's Bazaar. Okay, so just wow. Ted Teddy. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable guy. Incredible, beautiful man. I learned so much from this guy. Just hanging. Um, Gary Katz. Wow. You know, um, Richard Perry, uh, Lenny Warrenker, of course, Mo Austin, um, Larry Blackman from Cameo. Get out of here. Yeah. Wow. And me and Rob Cavallo walked in at the same time. Rob was an A&R scout in L.A. Um, and my other major mentor, Karen Berg, 
Who do you know who Karen? I don't know. Okay. Karen signed the Cars, Dire Straits, oh. Husker Du. Oh, okay. Um, she's responsible for REM coming to Warner Brothers. Uh, Nick, Nick Crenshaw, just sure. One of the great, the great A and R person. She's up there with John Hammond. Mm, okay, mm. Um, was a total mentor to me. And she, so I'm sitting around the room and we're talking about music. This whole table. And there were other guys like Benny Medina was in the room, mm. like in, in like other types of guys, and Seymour Stein and Joe McEwen from Sire. And sometimes the meetings would be bigger, sometimes smaller, but we'd listen to a demo of an artist one of us wanted to sign, and we'd all talk about it. What do you, who, who do you think he should work with? What producer would you think? Right. Of? Oh, you wow. Know, when we had, whether it was a meeting or one-on-one, I'd go to visit L.A. a lot, and I'd walk into Teddy Templeman, and I'd play him Joshua Redman roughs I was working on. And he'd say... Man, what the bass sound of that? How'd you get that bass sound? We talk about the bass sound. He goes, man, it's so funny that that it doesn't have that nasty pointed nasal thing I'm used to hearing. Well, how'd you do that? And I talk about it. Oh, okay. And then well, I go, you know, the problem I'm having is where's we put this percussion on this track, and how does this land there? Well, he played percussion on all those Doobie Brothers records. Oh, I didn't. Know yeah, that. he's oh, telling wow. me all this. So anyway, it was a real creative environment where we're surrounded by people who know how to make records. Mm, mm. And then if we sat with an artist, we were talking about music. Yeah. And if we brought an artist into a meeting with other people at the company, either it was those kinds of people or the marketing people were in there for all the right reasons. Right. right. So you had these guys who had created, you know, Carl Scott, who invented tour support, mm. invented mm. putting an artist on the road and sucking the life out of every venue, every right. every market that artist goes into. How do you saturate that market mm-hmm. in 30 hours? Okay. So a lot of that kind of shit was going mm. on. So mm. anyway... It's a long, long story, made longer. But to me, I wanted to work within that system. And so that company, when I got there, was that. I was love, lucky enough to have Mo Austin hire me and, and you know, the, the bits of wisdom this man gave me. I mean, I would walk into him with an artist I wanted to sign. And it was almost like this thing, instead of it being, I have to approve all signings. It's more like, I want Dad to like me. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. So you think so? I like walk, would walk in with a demo of a recording, or an re- artist I want to sign, and I'd say, hey, here's this guy, Mark Turner. I really want to do it. Oh, wow. Mark. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure about it because it's he's a really niche kind of jazz guy, but I think he's a complete genius. And yeah, we have Joshua. That's true. Yeah. And it's not a competition. They've actually played together before. Joshua introduced me to Mark, and I wanted do this, but I don't know that there's a business here. He goes, no, no. He says, stop. And I'm thinking, this Mo's an accountant and a genius in terms of mm, really mm. A marketing mind, and he can do P&Ls in his head, like you believe. And but it always came down to he just said to me after all this, my present presenting to him the numbers and why I felt like it was just if I do this artist. He just looks at me and I goes, do you really believe in him? I go, yeah. He goes, do you have a, a serious passion for this artist, or you believe that? It's incredibly important to document his artistry on this label. So, yes. Then you do it. Wow. Shit, okay. Yeah. Now, part two. Right. What what are the numbers? Well, yeah. Got you. And then I sit down and say, well, this is how it's going to make sense. And then you have a recording budget commensurate with what? Well, I mean, but at the same time, I had the passion for the artist. And and he'd ask me to define the passion for the artist. He'd ask me to define what is it about this artist that I feel moves me on such a deep emotional level mm-hmm. that if I didn't get the record for free, I'd buy five and give four away to my friends? Gotcha. Okay, gotcha. it's a whole yeah, other yeah, yeah. thing. So then, when I, as an A&R person, the, uh, the pieces of A&R, which, were, which are you know, talent scouting, finding the artist and all that stuff, signing the artist involve, involving you know, creating the deal, negotiating the deal, yeah. working with the attorney to figure out the points, 
interfacing with management and agent in the booking and all that stuff. In my case at Warner, it was completely rewriting the artist contract mm. so that it more was more commensurate to what a jazz artist would want. So we rewrote all the clauses about sideman performances and a lot of those yeah. things. Um, uh, royalty bumps at lower sales levels, like things that made more sense for a jazz artist. So once the artist is there, then it's overseeing the art of the creative process, which has to do with having a direct relationship with the artist where you can talk about how are you going to make this artistic statement today. Yeah. This piece of it, which I know that what I say might get me in trouble, whatever, but there are three different ways of doing A&R, I'll say. And I'm making this shit up as I go along, but this is what I believe. The first part is I'm going to sign an artist and here's the money, make your record. Okay, so I was at the Blue Note panel at Jazz Connect the other day, and there's Glasper and Jason Moran and Michael Cascuna, and Bruce is sitting there in a wheelchair, mm, you know, mm, and yeah. we're talking about Blue Note Records and all that, <clears throat> and Jason says, yeah, all that happened was, you know, I made my record and handed it in, and I, I remember going into a meeting with Bruce and saying, started presenting him what my next record's going to be, and Bruce, like, stopped me and said, no, just go ahead and make your record. Yeah, he did the same thing okay. with me most of the time. Now, yeah. with certain artists... Okay. Yeah. But at the same time, well, I no would one... go to him with a, with not just the concept of the record. I'd go with everything. I'd well, be like, you... okay, here's the concept of the record. Here's the marketing plan. Exactly. Here's the here's what it's going to look like. His and he would just be like, and, thank you. And that first yeah. approach that works with some artists. Yeah. With you, that works. If the machine you're handing it to can enact can be active and put in place the marketing plan gotcha. that you envision. Gotcha. Which doesn't didn't okay. always work. That piece with the A&R person has to be able to look at your plan and go, you know what, that can't work because this guy and this guy and this guy are who we're going to have to work through. And they're not capable of doing it your way, but let's find a way that they're capable of doing it, and then we'll create a, we'll create a marketing plan yeah. to put through our, our system. So, But the creative part, I'm talking mainly about the creative part, an artist very often needs some sort of oversight and direction mm. for two reasons. First of all, no one's going to hear your music the way you hear your music, and you can't expect them to. Mm -hmm. Someone has to edit what you do sure. on an artistic passion level, emotional level, to communicate it to a listener. Because they, you know, and so, and part of that for an artist is about, and this is the same in producing, what's special and distinctive about an artist and what's going to move the listener on a deep emotional level isn't always what you think it's going to be. You respond to the audience. Yeah. what they're doing at that moment. But the oral, exclusively oral experience of listening to the recording is different. And so that editing down and saying what that's going to be, that's the craft of a producer. And mm -hmm. from an A&R standpoint, the A&R vision is about who's your audience, what's your audience want, what's your next potential audience, what about your music is going to reach them on a deep enough emotional level that it's not a flash in the pan to them, that it's something that has some stickiness. Mm -hmm. Where they're going to feel they need you in their life to the point that they're going to give you money to experience your music. Right. Now, that balance of art and commerce is what the business is all about. Sure. You're monetizing. You're a drug dealer. Mm. You're monetizing an emotional impact. Okay, a spiritual, emotional thing the listener has. Yeah. If that's but I think with center, music right now, it's it's like our drug is is like very sad shake <laughs> shake weed. Well, and then the other stuff is like you have <clears throat> you have your heroin, which is which is like YouTube, and then you have your crack, which is the Xbox. <laughs> well, and all these other drugs are are much more addictive than ours is. Well, that's 
And that is part of the problem is that we haven't created our blue meth. We have to right. make every record fucking blue meth. <laughs> well, every, if every recording isn't blue meth, then right. it ain't going right. to generate revenue right. and keep you on in a job. You're going to be a waiter. But don't you think also, I mean, my attitude is like there, there was a time when recordings were, had a different life in the larger community. They had a different life. Now recordings are... The, the recording industry or whatever you would like to call it, or recordings are a very small, generally the successful ones are a very, very small part of a much larger brand that's being yeah, but, managed. But, 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 so, so, but I'm not saying they're unimportant. I'm not saying it's unimportant to capture that. I'm saying that, you know, you capture that, and my goal is to get people to, to come to the gig and pay tickets to come to yeah, the gig. But, but see, <clears throat> okay. Again, this is a long thing because, you know, we're talking about Warner Brothers Records and sure, what it sure, was sure. and why I was there and yeah, what I felt yeah. a passion for. And then after 12 years at the company, it transformed into into a, 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 a complete fucking monster. So tell me about that. Tell okay. me about that transformation. <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing about it, and then, you know, no one's... I didn't deal with anyone that was not a good person. Yeah, and I'm not. We okay. don't. We don't try to get people to down people or Why diss not? people. If you feel like you need to, you can feel free. But that's, no, no, here's if you here's feel the like deal. you need to. Here's the deal. Feel I, free. As a person, I mean, obviously, I'm a very passionate person. Um, it a huge chunk of life, my life, I was very opinionated and arrogant. Mm. Um, but <laughs> I was right. Well, I remember. I remember <laughs> you back in the day, and I was like. Okay, this guy's a really smart motherfucker, but he's kind of freaking me out, man. Like I was just like, oh, uh, just like he's building his empire or oh, no. something is going on no, here. No, and it. then and then later on, I was shocked because you and I had very divergent paths within that universe. And then twenty years later, we come around and we're always at right. the same places, just hanging <laughs> right. out. You well, know? you know the the thing about you know it, it was the story of the record business. Yeah, yeah. Exactly so tell it. Tell through. it. I mean. Because you came in just like I did. You came in at the end. Well, not the end, but you I came got to in Warner just Brothers towards in 1992. the end. Just towards the end okay. of the of the old era. And I and Warner was the last bastion of artist artistry in the, in the major record. And business. that was what okay. they built their whole thing. And that and Mo. That was Mo. Yeah. Now, the story of of I mean, Warner uh, Brothers is whole, famous for having an artist like Linda Ronstadt. Make no, three or four. Not Linda. Not Linda. Well, but well, I mean, they make three or four records. Randy Newman, right. Ry Cooter, Gordon Ry Cooter, which are some of my all-time yeah. favorites. So you make Joni a bunch Mitchell of records that beginning. don't sell tons and tons of records. No, but it was built signing artists, believing that artist, exactly. and stick with that artist, exactly, and have exactly. a team around them that could support them, whether exactly. that's ears that they trusted, or marketing people that they could trust to tell the story. You'd have Stan Corn in there marketing them and creating these campaigns to draw attention to their music in a hip way. Yeah. You'd have Carl Scott and his division out there getting them on the road and milking the markets in the best ways they could because a lot of these artists didn't have hit singles. Sure. You'd have a promotion department with Thyrette and all those guys finding nooks and crannies to create hits out of markets that grew regionally and then became exactly. national. Um, you'd have all the, just the ultimate record company headed up by Mo and Lenny. Mo, the smartest fucking guy in the business in terms of how a record company can and should be run, driven by passion for artistry and music and monetizing passion for music. And Lenny, who's the ultimate producer. Mm -hmm. Okay. The ultimate balance with those guys. Sure. Um, so, so tell so, how it happened. So, so what was I mean, your, so from 92 until well, the thing, everyone, 2004? I, I, not to tell the, I, I'm not going to tell the whole story of Steve Ross, Bob Morgado, Michael Fuchs, you know, well, the, the battles the, with Doug Morris and in more in. 
Give and us the Breeders, the Breeders Digest version. I mean, basically what happened was Steve Ross got sick, ended up passing away from cancer. Steve Ross's approach to the Warren, to, to all of his companies was put great people in charge and let them do their thing. Okay. The classic story of, of, of Ahmed Erdogan and Ahmed over there. And, you know, he'd go into a meeting and they'd say, you know, how, how are you going to, how are you going to make these numbers in the next quarter? He goes, we'll make them. You know, well, how do you know? Well, we've made them before. We'll make them again. Well, what if you don't make them? Well, we'll make it up the next quarter. He goes, well, how are you going to make better numbers? More hits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I love and Steve, that. And Steve I Ross love would that. be like, okay. Yeah. You're I Ahmed. I trust you. I love And back that. then yeah. it was, you know, it was Ahmed, you know, along with Doug at Atlantic. It was Mo and Lenny. And it was Krasnow and Electra. And these guys were left to do their thing. And they would, it was the way I was under Mo. It was like, do your thing. I trust you, Matt. You're running the jazz department. As long as you make profits, fantastic. I trust you. And if you have a bad year, show me how you're going to turn it around. And I trust you. Yeah. And just don't be. You're not going to yeah. be domed by quarter, quarterly <clears throat> no. reports. And they they understand how, yeah. how the record business right. works, you know. And if you try to create a business that has hardcore numbers you know you can deliver in the short term, you're going to have a, a, a short tail in the long term because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you're shining th- signing things for quick hits. Quick hits. Absolutely. Whereas we do our long-term arms yeah. development and all these things over time. They even out. Connect and reconnect. Yeah. If you're signing the right artists and you have the right creative people yeah. involved. So that was the model that was there. Well, over time, eventually Steve was out. Bob Morgado became the head of the music group. He started beating people up about profits and numbers. And eventually uh, there was this coup kind of going on between... Danny Goldberg and, and Doug Morris at Atlantic, they got together with Sylvia and they were trying to take over the music group. And then Doug ended up elevated. And through all this, Mo was like, I don't know if I can hang with this. Yeah. Because uh, I'm a Austin and sure. I've earned this and don't tell me what numbers to do and what make and what to do. Sure, sure. And, and, and he had already dealt with, you know, Geffen and, and David Geffen and the Geffen Record Company and investing in Geffen for several years. And then Geffen, because... He pissed Mo off because they had a really nasty lunch with Evelyn, Mo's wife, and like De- Geffen was this arrogant guy at this meeting. He ended up going straight to Doug, straight to Steve Ross, and Steve Ross gave him a deal where he could, at the end of the term, he could walk away with his company. You know, wow. So that's he made a bad deal that everyone. Mm. If you see the Geffen documentary, Invented David Geffen, which is a great documentary by the way, he, Mo tells the story. Oh, about okay, it and all that. But anyway, over time, finally, it was like Mo's like, I'm, I'm gone. Mm, so mm. Mo left. So and initially, sold, for sold, a few yeah. months, Lenny was going to take over. And finally, because everyone, everyone at that company, this whole senior staff at that company was so much of a family. There were people at that company that at that time had been there for 30 years. Mm. They'd start with Mo when Mo started reprise of Sinatra in 62 or whatever that was. Wow. So you had all these passionate real music people who lived for that job in that building, in that cool building out in L.A., big wooden like thing so anyway finally Lenny was like I, I'm not gonna run the company I can't do this and um <clears throat> and finally he decided to go and they brought in Danny Goldberg and Danny had been part of the Doug Morris thing and so Doug's like let's plug in Danny so Danny comes in and he grabs David Altshul and Russ Thyrett as co-chairman so now because they were old school Warner guys Thyret was the spirit and passion of everything Mo had. I mean, Thyret was one of the great mentors in the business. And David was a really, really smart attorney, but a human being mm. on, a, on, the, on the deepest level. Really, really mentioned great guy. 
And then Danny was Danny Goldberg. I don't really know about Danny, but, you know, managed Nirvana. Oh, okay. okay. All right. And then went to, a, you know, he, he really, really great manager who ended up needing to learn the record business really fast and didn't quite learn it effectively. Not his fault. Mm-hmm. So anyway, they put the team in place of them. And one of the first things that Danny did was he let Ricky Schultz go, who was in L.A. doing the, heading up the marketing of jazz, and put me in charge of the whole jazz division. So I went from being an A&R guy to heading up Warner Jazz. Right. And so I was able to take the team that was there and, and grab a couple of other people from other departments and form my own little operation. Still in the, in the, in the form of what Warner was and what Mo wanted things to be, mm-hmm. you know. So I was able to do that. And then over time, Danny left and they moved in Thyrette to be the chairman of Warner Brothers Records. So for several years, when I was running the jazz division, Russ was over me, and Russ was Mo. Mm-hmm. I'd go into a meeting with Russ, and he'd say, your numbers are great. I'd always turn a 5 to 10% pre-tax profit as a, as a company, as a jazz division. I would always be aggressive in putting together catalogs. I would be top of the charts at radio, getting Grammy noms and Grammy wins. Like, we had a great label. Yeah. And in terms of what we built, it was a balance of the straight-ahead, the most right. important straight-ahead guys. So it was Kenny Garrett, Joshua Redman, Brad Meldow. Um, uh, it, 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 near the end also was like McBride, Nicholas Payton, Mark Turner, Larry Goldings, Kevin Mahogany. I remember, okay. yeah, yeah. And then, then I signed Matheny. Um, Mo and I signed, I signed, I went to Mo and said, we got to get Matheny. We signed him. We still won't get for a couple of records. Mm. And we were able to grab Pat. Right. So brought Pat in, and then... There was uh, that record called Zero Tolerance. Zero Tolerance for Silence. And was someone was calling it Zero Tolerance for Geffen. <laughs> no, actually, the record that the record that he delivered was Quartet. Oh, okay. That was the contractual obligation. Got you, got you. Anyway, it's a long... I'm sorry, it's yeah, long yeah, story, sure, but, sure. Uh, but then, worry, we have editors. But on the, on the, we on have the, Adam Dorn, uh, editor extraordinaire. On the commercial side, you know... I, when I got there, it was Mark Whitfield and then Al Jarreau, George Benson, Bob James, some of that stuff. Right. So on the commercial side, you know, we trimmed it back to the guys who were had a current audience, were really important, but also had depth of talent that I mm-hmm. knew they meant something as artists. So um, we had Rick Braun, uh, Norman Brown, and Kirk Whalum, and Boney James, and um, Larry Carlton, George Duke, Joe Sample, Bob James, Foreplay. I mean, and it was a class roster. And then also, because I was doing some stuff joint with Nashville, we had Bella Fleck and Mark O'Connor in Take Six, mm-hmm. but kind of halfway. So anyway, we built this roster. Well, over time, eventually, um, everything was great for, for six, seven, eight years, whatever. Um, eventually, the change took place where Roger Ames, who was running the Warner Music Group, I had been meeting with Roger about consolidating the entire jazz operation. We had, in, we had um, absorbed Atlantic. Jazz. They went out of business. We were able to take whatever artists from their roster that we wanted. So I picked up a Cyrus Chestnut record and picked up um, Rick Braun. No, no, I signed Braun. Let's see. Brian Culbertson. A couple of artists that were on that roster. But I wanted a catalog. It was like, let's put the Atlantic catalog. Adam Dorn's dad right there. I mean, and and I I want, let's get that Atlantic Jazz catalog, which is Atlantic Jazz. The Warner Jazz catalog, which was all that shit that Tommy did. And all that. So you had all the great Sanborn and Giroux and Benson and Michael Franks and all this great right. contemporary jazz from the late seventies or eighties. And 80s. those records didn't didn't uh, sell poorly. Either. No, I mean it was it was. And we, you know, I, I produced a bunch of compilations with those and most, some of those artists we were still in business with one right. way or another. So 
I mean, it, it created this perfect thing. We, I wanted to combine this together. Well, around that time that I had this plan in place, um, they hired Tom Wally coming to run Warner Brothers Records. Yes, I remember. And yeah, got, very unceremoniously, the word got out. Russ I'm, found out yeah. in the press. Where do I know that guy from? Well, he had been an A&R scout. He started in the mailroom at Warner Brothers, became an A&R guy at Warner Brothers, then became head of A&R Capital. So that's then where he I met left. Him. Then he left Capital yeah, yeah. and went and ran Interscope. No, so, yes, yeah. and that's where I knew him because he wanted to sign me to Interscope at the same time you and Bruce. Oh, really? And we almost signed with Interscope. Well, he was. I mean, he was Jimmy. He was Jimmy Iovine's right hand guy. Okay, so he now was I the remember business him guy. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And a, a, an A and R guy. And a solid. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he yeah. signed Trent Reznor and Tupac and a lot of stuff over there, right? From what I understand. Anyway. Um, he, they brought him, you know, uh, Roger always liked him, Ames, and wanted to bring him in to run Warner Brothers Records, which made sense because he was an A&R guy and he had started at Warner and let's bring in Tom. The problem was um, he had a way of running a company that was everyone's going to fall in line do things the way I do them. Now, that's fine if you're a pop label and if you're Interscope and you're doing pop and hip-hop and right. rock. That doesn't work if you're a full operate full uh, fully operational multi multi genre company. Mm -hmm. um, the the areas that became a problem were Nashville, which was run by Jim Ed Norman, who's a genius producer arranger. He wrote all the string arrangements on all the Eagles records. Mm. A real music guy running Nashville, and then me running the jazz division, because I was a record producer and a creative guy and an A and R person, and I, you know, I was running it the Warner Brothers way, the same way that you know. Well, the black music department, which had always been a problem going back forever, he had experience in black music. So he was dealing with the, the black music hip-hop area. And then in the rock, pop, bands, and all that stuff, he was good at that. But he expected us to kind of follow line and run our operations similarly to how they run the rest of the operations. Mm. So instead of coming to me and saying, and looking at our numbers and saying, wait a minute, Matt, you guys are 50% chart share on the smooth jazz chart. You are 35% chart share on the Billboard sales chart. You've got more Grammy nominations and wins than anyone over the past three years. Um, you know, you've got profitable records and you're making money for the company. I'm not expect them to come in and say, how are you doing it? Right, It's right, going right. to be like, oh, you're cool. I'm going to leave you alone. No, it was, you're going to do things the way we do, which right. had to do with... If I wanted to spend any money, I had to get it approved by a budget sure, committee. Sure, of course. Yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. I'm like... And I wanted to spend independent promotion yeah. money, you yeah. know, four grand on a record, yeah. on a Boney James record or something that it's like, this is what we do for a living. This is money we have yeah, to spend yeah. here. You're going to have to trust me on this. Yeah. We have four gold records here for a reason. No, it was, well, you're going to have to justify this well, expense. And, and, and so a month later, when it finally gets up at the budget meeting, I'm like, well, now we lost the record. So there were a lot of those cases. And then there were cases where the manager would get to Tom or one of his people and go in and complain about us is a way for them to get money approved. Because I'd say no, because I had to say no, because they wouldn't approve it. Or because I knew my budget and I knew what the fuck I was doing. That manager would then go to Tom. Tom wouldn't want to upset the artist. He'd go, okay, we'll do it. And so then I'd get here from the manager, Tom said okay for us to cross a third single to Urban AC Radio. I go, oh, he did? Yeah. So and I call Tom. I'm like, Tom, what's, what are you doing? I already told them no. Yeah. I sent you an email saying we're going to say no to this third single because this is my business. I know this isn't going to come back to us financially. If we want to spend money, 
let's spend money, you know, you know, uh, tour support money and get the, get this artist out supporting Urban Act. Yeah. Let's spend the money in a smart way to get the artist in front of someone. Don't spend another money at promotional single or something. Mm-hmm. So those types of things started happening. So about a year of that happened where I, I, I was fighting against it and all that stuff. And then a year of me trying to save the company. Mm-hmm. Of, 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 and that's what hurt me the most. Uh, because I had to meet with artists and say, this is what we need to do. And, and act like I believed it. And right. I didn't believe it. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, I had to. But that's part and parcel kind of, of the gig. You well, know? I mean, it, it, it never was, and it wasn't. Until, it wasn't what I signed yeah, on yeah, for. Yeah. That's not what I signed on with Mo yeah. Austin to do, and that's not what I proved myself over ten years to show that I could do. Right. Now, it's cool. It was a business changing, and I re- see there were two things that happened. Uh, quick stories I'll tell. One is David Dorn came in to a meeting. I remember, and he was he had a gig at Warner digital he was doing the digital stuff <laughs> we had this meeting with the senior executive meeting i was on the senior staff so i was one of the top dozen executives at warner brothers so i was out in la about half the time and i always be in this thursday meeting we called korea that was all the senior people talking about the priorities for the company and the budgets and all that stuff and so we start talking about napster so what, what is this, this like 2004, 2005? 2002. 2002. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. Very you know, early. It was the beginning, and it was the beginning of PDP. Yeah. And it was, people are stealing the music, and this and that and the other. And I was the one in the room. I'm not trying to brag. I'm in the room going, why are we talking about this? Why aren't we talking about how to connect with these people? Yeah. We're not giving them product that's worth the money we ask for, but they want it so much they'll steal it. What the fuck? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what exactly. the fuck? Writings That's what we have wall. to talk Writings about. Writings on the wall. These well, people that we can find yeah. want to steal our music. Let's yeah. translate them into financial uh, financial money. Well, if I may, there there definitely was a point where at that time, the late 90s, the early 2000s, where people started to have a lot of access. And they're like, well, wait a minute. I mean, the, the industry painted itself into a corner. You know, first with CDs charging insane amounts of money ultimately for a product which costs them nothing to make and and repackaging things selling the same record four or five times with different masterings etc etc so they paint themselves into a corner you go into a store you have an xbox game that cost millions and millions of dollars to make for twenty dollars you have a dvd that cost millions and millions of dollars to make for twenty (coughs) dollars and you have a cd which cost (coughs) Thirty thousand dollars to make and has paid itself off generations ago for twenty dollars. Right. Well, I'm, why I'm, are you going to buy the CD? Well, you I, know, if you're a kid, why on earth are you going to buy that? Well, CD? well, there's a you know, the reason to buy music is because you a a, a an artistic an oral experience has been creative that that created. Well, no, I know that's that. worth some, know. Well, well, hold on. I know that that's worth money to you. And the, and the record company has overseen it in a way that they are now prepared to monetize it in a reasonable fashion right. for for the right price. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for a long time, when we go back to whether it was 78s and there's one one tune on each side and all that, long sure, record sure. and stereo and mono and stereo and the media, whatever and the media, whatever it is, it was. This is how much money this experience is worth to us right. relative to the current marketplace. Right. And there was never a transition, a gradual transition, based on monetization in the music industry right we continued to raise keep the prices up i remember having means where i said we want to go to 1898 list on everything i'm like we've been 16 and 1798 we're going to raise it a dollar 
Now, I'm making records that top to bottom are quality albums. It's, it's a 50, 40 to 55 minute experience. It's mm -hmm. worth this money, top to bottom. These motherfuckers down around the corner over here, now these new pop A&R people that are over there, are delivering one and two singles, and the rest is a bunch of fucking, fucking bullshit, and you mm -hmm. can't buy the singles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, well, how is that a model? Exactly. That's ripping your yeah, fans yeah. off. Exactly. Motherfucker. Exactly. Okay? So the, once that happened in the industry where, but we built that model that based on corporations owning the well, corporations owned these companies, mm -hmm. and we were expected to make and certain fewer, profit. And fewer numbers. corporations owned right. more and more so of these through companies. All, through all of that, then these companies put finance people in charge, or finance people Absolutely. under the creative people. Absolutely. So you have these finance people meeting yeah, yeah. and saying, how are we going to make these profit, this, how are we going to make this growth number? Yeah. Well, to make that growth number, you put out catalog, because catalog's already paid for, so the profit margins are high. You reissue the same record again because the profit margin on that is high. So you continue to upgrade people, get them to buy the same thing over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> and you trick the fan into giving you their money and taking the product home. And they can't return it because the quality of the music sucks. Exactly, they can only return it if there's exactly. a defect. And there's no way for okay? them to listen to it before they, right. before so they check it within out. Within four or five years of that shit, and you're a consumer sitting with a yeah. shelf of CDs yeah. you spent $1,000 for, exactly. and there are 50 cool songs there, yeah. you're not going to stick no. with that model. It's, it's the wire, that, that season of the wire, when the junk they had to sell was crap because mm -hmm. that one gang made some bad business moves. So all the junkies started going elsewhere. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Oh, and it's it, exactly you know. that. And so, but, and so but what, 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 when we sat in that meeting, that's one of the turning points for me. Right. Where I said, I'm now at a different company. And I thought, I said, what would this meeting have been if it was Bruce, uh, if, if it was Mo Austin, Lenny Warnker, Russ Thyrett, Carl Scott, Jim Wagner, Teddy Templeman. All Russ the guys Tem from The guys from that, that I period. went to Warner yeah. with who created that company, what would those people be having a discussion but, about? They yeah. would have been talking about, we're fucked if we don't learn to reach on a deep emotional level these people who are stealing our shit. Right. That's what needed to happen. And I, I, and I agree with you. And it didn't happen because they got so involved in all of the gigantic corporate business uh, culture. And they became entirely quarterly driven. Yeah. And not just that. They, the thing is, is that the difference, they, the, the people that you're talking about understood the difference between science and magic. And they understood where science and magic meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. And like when you're talking about Ahmed Erdogan saying, oh, we'll make it work. Yeah. Well, you know what? He understands that the magic is there. Look. And if you use the science correctly, then the magic will be there. But you can't go in there with just science. Yeah. And, and it brings up another thing. It's like today, here's, here's the deal. We're talking about a bygone era. And things have moved so fast that it comes down to the point of medium and content. Content always rules, always. No matter what, content is always the straightest point, is the shortest path between two points. You know, mm -hmm. it's between the producer and the maker. Medium is something which a middleman or somebody can manipulate and can can demand a certain amount of money for mm -hmm. what the content is. Now, what you're talking about is an era in music where the medium and the content reached at times a nice synergy that worked for everyone. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it, it I think in the majority of the time it worked more in in the favor of the, the record industry because the record company versus the musicians. Mm -hmm. A lot of that was the musicians 
fault sometimes, mm-hmm. but you know, a lot of it was an inherently bad relationship between mm-hmm. the musician and the record company that was oh. basically based on a plantation thing. But it was it's it's interesting to have been a musician that was in that world doing everything right. I thought I was giving them records uh, below budget that sold way more copies than they thought they were going to sell. I didn't see very much money because I was always investing in the business and investing in the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and it's another refrain we have in this thing where, you know, I kept investing in the thing thinking naively that, oh, well, you know, Bruce is a great guy. Tom Everett is a great guy. These these people are, they've got my back. And those people did have my back to a certain extent, but it had nothing to do with them. It had to do with the fact that you, that relationship was so inherently flawed that the guys, when I was a kid, that are our age now that we're saying, man, whatever happens, you sign that deal, you get the cash in advance. <laughs> get the cash in advance. That's all you're ever going to yeah. see. And, and I'm all, well, I was always like, are you kidding me? These guys are such sourpusses. That's yeah. no way to run your business. How do you expect to ever get anywhere? And the fact is, at the end of the day, it was get the cash in advance well, if you're a musician, generally speaking. Yeah. Now, what you're talking about is the the industry has completely changed. And for some people like us that were in it, it was like, oh, my God, why? Why is how is this? What is going on? But if you if you look at it in terms of the LP era being what defines how you think about music and mm-hmm. how music should be, then, yes, it is a conundrum. But if you look back to as far back as Bach, and you look at all, or even farther back as griots, you know, mm-hmm. and you look at the musician's relationship to community mm-hmm. and to commerce, and you look at that through the ages, mm-hmm. it's a kind of a, a kind of a logical continuum that we well, would be in the place that we are now. And so basically, it, 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 we have to figure out a way as musicians to put ourselves back into the community and not the community of musicians that only go to hear musicians but the community of musicians that are our job and it doesn't matter if you are the art ensemble of chicago or you are britney spears our job is the same thing you find your audience and obviously britney spears and the art ensemble are going to have very different audiences but you find your audience and you take them out of their left brain and you put them in a plane of existence where they you are helping them to meditate and to reach some higher ability of subconscious dealing and you're giving them whatever the message is on Mm -hmm. this incredibly deep nonverbal level that they are a part of a community regardless and I play small gigs for 50 to 100 people and I make enough money to get by and I've never been happier playing music Hey. I was very unhappy when I was playing those thousand seat places and being on a record label and all this stuff. I just didn't know it because I didn't have any other experience. Yeah. I was, but I did know that I was much happier as a street musician yeah. than I was when I was on Blue Note Records yeah. at the core. Granted, you know, you had cred and you go somewhere and said, oh, man, I know that guy. And after a while, it's like, oh, boy, you know, what a fancy guy. He's on Blue Note Records, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's like, well, wait a minute. This is not making me happy. I want I want people well, that I don't know to stop and listen to the music. <clears throat> and, and I want to feel their vibe and feel being a musician and feel that connectivity to all the musicians that have come before me and all that will come after me. And so my attitude about the medium is, yeah, it's a shock. 
when the record companies go belly up. Most of it due to, like you're talking about, to their own adherence to this quarterly thing and to fear that the six-figure salary is going to go away tomorrow. But musicians will always abide. Yeah, but see, and that, that definition will change, yeah. but the, the music and the content will always abide. Well, the, the reason the record business killed itself um, and it used to be talk about we're in a revolution. Sorry, it's Armageddon. Okay, <laughs> it's scorched earth. Okay, right. we're we're planting seeds to build a new business model that already kind of exists in different ways. But right. The reason. Well, the, the bad guys won is what you're basically trying to say. The bad guys won, which means loss. Yeah. The bad guys losing means that there are bodies strewn throughout the throughout the Coliseum. Okay. Right. This is not. You know, a good. This is not a real victory. Okay, right, right, right. So, well, you know, I'm not what, saying what, that it's a what you, yeah. But you're, the, the parallel to what you just said, which is what the musicians have done, and what you come back to as an artist, is the exact same place I am as a producer and an A and R person. Now, to me, A and R and production are, are inextricably connected. Mm -hmm. It's one job, and I came into it feeling it was one job, and I was lucky enough to get two gigs at companies where over time I was able to do both. I was able to be involved in. Art, who's the artist, identifying the artist, identifying what's special about the artist, being involved in the artistic vision, yeah. whether that's involved in what's the project going to be, what are the songs going to be, who's the producer, where you, you know, all the details of setting up what you're going to do, and then actually being in the studio and realizing that vision, and then figuring out how to hand that off to an audience and make a deep emotional connection with mm -hmm. that audience. Mm -hmm. That's always been the same thing. We've always dealt with monetizing, connecting emotionally with an audience. Mm -hmm. Bach made a living writing music that put seats in the church yeah yeah okay come to our it's church the same fucking thing come to our god franchise yeah. we have bach in our god <laughs> yeah, we franchise got who do you have we got bach on our team yeah. You know? yeah so i mean it's the same thing the reason the record business lost itself is because it became about it, it not only didn't become about it became became about a quick fix not a sticky emotional connection mm -hmm. with the audience mm -hmm. it became a quick yeah and there have always been pop hits i mean there was always sure. dogging my dogging the window and First record yeah, Quincy yeah. produced was at my party. Okay. Right, right. So, Which is a good tune. I yeah, mean, yeah. But I mean, the thing is that there's always about, disposable yeah, music. Absolutely. But um, the issue was what's going to drive the business is going to be deep emotional connection over a long period of time. Absolutely. Deep, emo deep relationships absolutely. between the artist and the fan. Yeah. That's what the label was there to do. When the minute the label stopped being about that, by definition, it was that. Yeah. That's what the record company was going to do. Right. We are the company that will take your record and get it to the fan. Mm -hmm. The minute it became about something else, and it was being run by people who had no idea what the right. fuck that emotional right. connection sure. was, sure. it was, you know, oh, yeah, I like Bob Dylan. Fuck you, you yeah, like Bob yeah. Dylan. <laughs> Where's your passion for music? Are you a musician? Do you know anything about I music? Like, and if you talk yeah, to yeah. an artist, like you've known the writers that you talk to that are non-musicians who get it. Yeah, sure. They don't have to be musicians. They get it. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. I, you know, one of my best buddies in the business, two of them were like Joe McEwen and Craig Geller. These are two of the best music guys in the business, period. Seymour Stein. These aren't musicians. Yeah. But they are musicians in this business. Mm -hmm. They're artists. They're passionate. They know what it is, and they do all their decisions. All of their choices are made for the right reasons, mm. and it's based on emotion and passion mm -hmm. and connection. And if you don't have that yeah. depth of emotion and connection... With your artist, you can't go to other people or company and get them to work it for you. Right, right. And if those people don't have enough of a passion for it to communicate it for yeah. you, the end end result is a fan not getting the message. Mm. So for because of that, the business became, you know, 
completely disposable. Well, not it no only, longer. Yeah. It no longer worked for real artists. Yeah. Well, I mean, basically, and some they real went artists from... made it work in spite of the business. Right. But for the most part, that business model could no longer yeah. exist for real music. Yeah. I mean, well, they went from basically, if I can use in a food analogy, they went from having a bunch of restaurants that <clears throat> if you wanted to get really great comfort food, you can get that. If you wanted to get a really great high-end French meal, you could get that. If you mm -hmm. wanted to get uh, a burger, you could get that. If you wanted pizza, you can get that. But it was all made generally with very good ingredients by people who knew what they were doing and put a lot of thought and oh. a lot of love into it. Now, all you have is a food court with blaring neon and everything in there is made to be frozen 500 years <laughs> and has high fructose corn syrup and hydrogenated oh, yeah. oils and beaks and feet and snoots and trotters. Oh, yeah. That's all you're going to get. But it delivers that super salty, oh, yeah. super fat, super sweet flavor to me instantly and it makes me feel good. And it's not really... It all, it's only there to accompany a visual Look, experience. Man, you and I know Dr. Luke is the high fructose corn syrup of the music business. That's okay. funny. I, I don't know him. I only I know him because Dr. Adam Dorn told me about him, but I don't know who he is. <laughs> I've never heard it. of him I before. shouldn't say that. Dr. Luke's cool, but, and, and there's talent there. But that pop production approach is the short-term payoff thing. Well, okay? it's, None it's of us like are gonna be blue singing. meth. Yeah, exactly. It's, the the well, intention behind it is to... In my it's opinion, not blue meth, man. Well, let me tell it's, you this. It looks like blue meth. It tastes like blue meth. <laughs> and it has no impact once you give them the money for the blue meth. Right. So it doesn't mess your teeth up. Exactly. You your teeth are cool. But, but ultimately, dude, it. I mean, we have kids. My daughter is 11. Um, luckily for my son, who's 13, is just likes classic rock. He doesn't right. like, like them, really any of the new music. So I never really have to hear it. But my daughter... She's a complete, and I don't even have network TV in my home. I don't have, there's no, she has to find it herself. Is she is a complete victim of the marketing mm -hmm. of the whatever the latest pop sensations are. Total and complete. And she buys it hook, line, and sinker. And I feel like having experienced that firsthand in my home, it's really awful. Because I have to explain to her, okay, you know, yes, Beyonce is very beautiful. Yes, she moves very nicely. There are some people, but she's not really a singer. And I and if you want to hear a real singer, let's listen to Aretha Franklin. Dude, let's listen dude. to Bessie Smith. As a One no. Direction look, the Jackson Five. Let's watch the Jackson Five because yes, there's a yeah, little but bit of that. Michael couldn't sing in tune. Come on. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, wait, wait. You know, the funny thing you bring up is I have twins that are 16, and one of them can sing along with every pop record right. in the world and Bruno Mars she loves and all Well, that he's stuff. a little different and, to me Well, Bruno but, but I mean Mars. Bruno's yeah, cool. Yeah, but yeah. some of the stuff she, you know, hip hop, she knows all these raps and things. So she's a product of that. Right. My other daughter is the tastemaker of her crowd. And okay. Into every hip offbeat band is, you know, beyond knowing about what the latest, right. you know, like it, it's very, very hip and yeah. very cutting edge. And I ask her about what bands people listen to. And I weave through them and I hear what it is she's hearing. Right. She's right. reach people are reaching, artists are reaching her on an emotional level with stories that resonate for her mm -hmm. in her life. Mm -hmm. And that's fucking beautiful. Yeah. So it can still happen. You got to look for it. You, well, you, you got to be one got, of those one you in a hundred kids. by people who yeah. encourage you to actually look exactly. for it. So there's, you yeah. know, that's, you know, the whole parenting and encouraging right. your children to seek what's, right. what has more, more than a short-term payoff. All that's important. Sure, sure. I mean, a lot of that, you know, one of the reasons why I ended up going the route I did, I mean, because, you know, back to that Warner thing, I mean, what ended up happening, and, and, and you know, the other story which had to do with Robert Randolph, 
Oh, Robert, the okay. pedestal player. Yeah. Oh, what's that story? No. I don't know. I mean, that I was, story. I, I basically I was involved in signing Robert. Okay. And what had happened with? Because I know the guys he kind of learned from or came from the Campbell well, brothers. The, Those the, are the my trick, guys. The trick with Robert was, um, I had heard about Robert and heard him down at Wetlands. I heard like half a set, and it was ridiculous. And then I thought didn't pick him up for a minute, and then I heard that there was a buzz about signing him. And Tom Molly called me and said, you, you, "Have you checked out Robert?" I said, "Yeah, but I'll go check him out again." So I went down to see Robert. It was killing. I went and talked to him, and we connected really well. It was cool. I said, man, you know, I'd love to see you come to Warner Brothers. What's up? And then we got kind of close, and I went to several gigs, and I told Tom about it. And finally there came this time when Tom hadn't seen Robert play live. And there was a gig going on in North Carolina, I think it was. Well, he was able to get the corporate jet. Oh, my God. Okay. Now, I had been on the jet a few times because my friend, Andy Caslow, who produced a, a Professor Longhair record, oh my he was God. a tenor player, ended up being the head of HR for All the Time Warner, like on the right hand of Rick Dick Parsons. He was also in charge of the planes. And it was just, you know, they were trying to cut it back, and it was at that zone. But still, they had these Gulfstreams. They oh, owned my them. God, that's hilarious. And, and there was an idea of justifying it. But anyway, to fly the Gulfstream somewhere costs like 100 grand. Oh, my right? God. I mean, it costs that kind of bread because you got the staff, and you got yeah. the gas, and you that's got like the fees, and the this and that. 20 records so, today. So here we are. It's like we're able to get the jet to go see Robert. So it was me and Tom. And Damu M. Tume, who was the art, the black music guy that Tom had brought in, who had worked with him in Interscope. The only record I know they worked on was Bilal's first record. Mm -hmm. And I, I won't say a word about my opinion of the talent involved, but not Bilal, but of the A&R staff and some of these yeah, musicians. No, but Bilal's good. I was on a plane with these three people. Yeah, yeah. And the reason I did it was I, I needed to be there because I was Robert's guy. And I wanted to smooth the transition say here's my boss as the head of the company we want you at Warner Brothers so we're on the plane going down there and also I wanted to be alone with Tom to talk about I had a list of things to talk to him about yeah. I was really trying to save the company at that point I was getting my ass kicked by these people and you know I had a lot of other stuff in my life personally going on at the time and I was trying to keep it together yeah and it sure, really sure. fucked up so we get down there limo picks us up at the airport takes us to the Robert Randolph gig the gig's fucking ridiculous. It's like in this theater with no seats and all the kids are going yeah, blue yeah, sure, and Robert's sure. playing the jam steel, band, the jam and the family crowd. band's going nuts yeah, yeah. and the drummer's ridiculous and and it's getting to the end of the gig and they're playing their last tune and Damu comes up and he goes, we gotta go. I go, what? He goes, we gotta go. They gotta get the plane back and it was like Parsons or someone had to use the plane the next morning and for us to, they had to get back to New York Oh my God. And I go up to Tom. I go, Tom, what's up? He goes, Yeah, we got to go. We got it. We got. We got three minutes. I go, Well, but he's on his last tune. It was about to. It was like time. You, you knew he was about. He was. He said this is the last tune. He's on the last tune. You knew he'd play an encore or two. And I was like, I'm here to see Robert. I got to go hang and talk to him after of the gig. And I want to introduce him to Tom. No, we got to go. And I'm like, Well, Tom, shouldn't I stay? At least I'll stay. And he goes, No, you should come on back. It's okay. You, you can call him. Whoa, was yeah, like, that fuck. was it. And one of the worst decisions I've ever made in my life, in my entire career, was not saying, Tom, you know what, I'm staying. Because I, um, I had said before I came to the gig, Robert had offered, well, ride the bus back with us to New York. I think they had a bus and they were going to, it was like, cool, I'll hang with the band. Because I had gotten to know the other guys in the band and all this. And no, I, I decided I had to ride the plane back with Tom because I had my agenda, the business. Sure, about sure. And he was my boss. So we got in, a, got in, you know, and I texted. We had a pager. Oh, I right, texted right, Robert right. and said, listen, man, I got a split. And I called and left a message. And 
you know, we got to split really sorry. Tom loved it. We want to make this happen. But there's some business that we, we have right. to go back to New York right, for. Right. I tell him I was on the plane. God. I said, we have to get back for a very important reason. Yeah. So we get back. We get on the plane. And it's like I got my agenda to talk to my boss about. He cacks out. <laughs> I, you know, and finally I land. I call Robert. And he's cool. And I said, listen, Robert, I'm sorry. Tom was there. He loved it. We, we, we're going to make this deal happen. And I was able to talk him down and all that. But that was it for me. I'm like, that was, I, I came home that night and I'm like, fuck this. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's and what happened, it was a point where I had an option on my contract and they didn't pick it up. You know, because it was clear it wasn't working out. And I wasn't going to go golf with Tom. Like, right. it was a whole other thing for me. It was not respect for music. It was not passion for music. It was not respect for me. And at that time, I had a lot of stuff going on in my personal life. And I was like, I got to get out of here. So I left. And yeah. um, had about four or five years of hell. <laughs> oh, what, what happened? What do you no, mean it's, hell? It's, I, I, I just hit really a really bad bottom in a lot of ways. Mm. I went through divorce. I went through bankruptcy. I went through not being able to get a gig because I was overqualified. Or right. people, I went from being yeah. everyone's best friend. To this is 2006? This is 2003, 4, 5. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, I wanted to, I, I got to know the Hal Gable, the guy who owned Concord. And... I was t Dave Cosby set me up with him because I had done deals with Dave, and I hit it off really well with Hal. And I wanted to go over and just be an A&R guy, yeah, yeah. Concord. But word got back that my name didn't go over so well. Oh yeah, you got blackballed somehow. Yeah, well, yeah, it was, yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of these guys that were ended up left in the business. You know, some of them I was competing with. I mean, yeah. Tommy was pissed at me for a while. He's cool now, uh. but I remember I, you know, Joshua Redman was. I wanted to resign Josh. His deal was up. And, you know, Verve wanted him really bad. And Tommy and Ron Goldstein. Tommy. Tommy LaPuma. Oh, okay. And Ron Goldstein had an offer on the table. And I put it off the table and I said to the attorney, who was a friend of mine, I said, I'm not going to offer one more penny to Verve. I want him to stay because of me and my operation, my company and our pension right. and our relationships. Right. I'll match the offer. And we have the catalog. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. there's more incentive to be with us. But I'm not going to get in a bidding war. Sure. I will match sure. the number and the number's there. And we did and he stayed. Well, of course, because of the nature of Zach Horowitz and MCA and all that stuff at that time at Universal, um, you know, the line was Pearson is amping up the price for all these artists, that I'm overpaying for artists and spending right. big money, that I'm the right. Yankees. Yeah. So, you know, I got a reputation for spending a bunch of money, but the fact was I wasn't. I mm. never, I never, there was never a point I didn't sign an artist I wanted, except I wanted to re-sign David Sanborn to Warner Brothers. And he wanted to leave the Warner operation. He was at Elector and he wanted to get out of WIA. And so he ended up going to Universal. But when I heard the offer there on the table, and I was like, I'll pay that. I put, I put a higher offer on the table then. Right. Because I didn't. I wanted Sanborn. I knew I had the catalog. But other than that, there wasn't an artist that I really wanted that I didn't get. Right. You're one of the only guys that I was like, I really want <laughs> this guy. But it but was like here's the Bruce. thing. Yeah, but here's the thing with me. I never wanted to be famous. I never wanted to be well. You, big. you, you got. You, you I got, wanted you, to be you got the result you wanted. I did. I wanted. <laughs> I did. And you know, and I had many friends who did get really big, I'm, and that scared me. And I saw it. And with you, I and that whole Warner Brothers thing, I thought, okay, this is a thing. If I do this, I'm gonna have to do a lot of shit that I don't want to do. What not been. because of you, but because of because of Katz Nelson, who I love, David yeah. Katz Nelson. He was an <laughs> awesome guy. But just I went to Warner, I saw it, and then when I went to Blue Note, I was like, okay, this is cool. Plus, 
they sent me a big ass box of Blue Note CDs. Oh, dude, <laughs> dude. The, the, the day that I came up to New York, before I moved to New York, I remember going to a meeting with Susan Levin to try to get this job. And it was, um, it was around Christmas before I moved to New York, Valentine's Day in 88. And, and it might have been Thanksgiving, whatever, right before mm, then. Mm. I came in, I had a meeting with her. It was really nice. I walked in, I got to meet Bruce. I was wearing a fucking suit. I don't know what the fuck <laughs> I was saying. You know, I got to meet Bruce, and he was really cool. And I'm like, she's like, yeah, I'll try to make this happen. Hopefully, you know, because I was planning to move to New York. She goes, okay, you want some CDs? I go, sure. And she goes over, and she opens up this file cabinet. I remember just, that file cabinet. And I go, she goes, take whatever you want. And I go, really? I said, anything you want. So I, when I went home, I had a shopping bag full, brimming with all these Blue Note CDs, most of which I still have. Dude. You know. Dude, when I signed with Blue Note, listen, you got to understand, I grew up with nothing, really nothing. I mean, I was a Berkeley kid with my mom, single mom, a lot of time we were on welfare, she worked two jobs, like the whole nine, all that stuff, you know. So, like, I had paper routes from when I was 10, my sister and I both, because, like, if we didn't want to wear clothes <coughs> from Value Village, which was like the thrift shop, and people always used to see, tease us and go, oh, here they come. They have a VVCC, which was a Value Village credit card. <laughs> now Value Village in Berkeley is like some like yoga studio that costs like $5 million a week to go to. But then it was like yeah. funky and funky. And for that reason, I will never step into yeah. any of used clothes. They can't do it. But you got to understand, man, that for me to buy a record... My sister and I had to buy a record when I was a kid. We'd go to Tower Records and we'd spend a long time choosing out a 45 oh, yeah. because that was money we made. If oh, yeah. we wanted to buy nice shoes like Adidas or whatever, we would buy with our paper oh. out money. So when I signed with Blue Note, you know, I mean, I was still doing gigs and, you know, just whatever gigs. Yeah, I remember going to I got you play a big, I mean, this box had like 500 Blue Note CDs <laughs> that came to my house. And I really, I really couldn't believe it. I was so touched. I had never yeah. gotten... A, a gift like that ever in my life I mean, and I, I just would, opened it up I and I had known. all my friends come over and everyone was looking and they couldn't believe it and people brought I mean this is cold blood but people brought like their tape recorders over I was like <laughs> oh, check out the Sonny Clark record or like oh my uh, god Dexter Gordon I have like six Dexter can you believe this if I'd and known like, I could have sent you some Sinatra and Madonna and Ariana oh like, man <laughs> <laughs> I could have sent you the whole Prince catalog the band you know? I know no, but you know what I'm saying yeah. so so but at the, you know that's you know back to the to wrap up this issue this story which is once I left yeah. it was a matter of no one's going to hire me so but I but my tried question a lot of though to things. you though is is bankruptcy like and it's interesting because as musicians we're always on the edge even if we do everything right you're always because it's a calling it's not a job bankruptcy? I mean, no <laughs> oh it's always calling it's always calling you shouldn't answer the phone though yeah. Matt you shouldn't but it's a it's a calling and. You know, but whenever I think about like people that I knew, like yourself or Lee Townsend or other people that I knew that maybe they had brief forays into the record company, it was always a legit salary with legit benefits and stock options and mm -hmm. all these things. And my question is to a guy like you that obviously to me, you really had your shit together. Like, how does it, how do you get to, to ban I mean, there's a million ways to get to bankruptcy. Look, man, look, man, look. Here's, and it's here's, not a character here's, here's thing. It's just I'm always here's, curious about I had a lot of stuff. issues in my personal life. Okay? Right. I had a bad marriage. I had a lot of other stuff going on. It only takes one uh, bad marriage. It, it only does. <laughs> and, it only and, takes half of that marriage. And I dug a hole for myself in a lot of ways because I wanted to hold on to this thing. And I didn't want to face the fact that actually I could be gone. Yeah. I'm like, they won't get rid of me. I have relationships with the artists. Well, my artist relationships had been tarnished by me given them the new company line. 
Yeah. So it was yeah, this yeah. fucking catch twenty two. Yeah. Um. So anyway, whatever the case, some of the financial thing and all that. Of course, you set up a lifestyle based on what you're making. Um. You know, Warner fucked me when I left the company. I was at the company for twelve years. I should have gotten twelve months salary at least. Mm. Mm. Usually, when people did separation agreements with the company, they get two months for every year they were with the company. So I should have gotten two years of salary. Right. At least one year of salary, a year for a month for every year. Right. I walked away with two months salary. Wow. Because it was, it was the rancor was just probably it, so it, Well, it, it, was, it was a case where my deal was up, so they just didn't pick up the option. So contractually, they didn't have to do anything. Right. And they were in the process of preparing to sell the company to, to Edgar Bronfman. So getting right. rid of the jazz division meant, you know, they look at More roster size More and, and how many executives yeah, are there. Sure. Cut these numbers were cool. So, you know, it was what it was. And they had reason to get rid of me because yeah. I was, you know, uh, it was not a, a healthy relationship. Yeah, and you were one ways. of the last vestiges of the old yeah, school Yeah, and it was well. like a few of us around that time, they got rid of a yeah. bunch of us. And now, you know, the thing is, it was really heartbreaking. I mean, I can't even begin to tell yeah, you yeah. what it was for me emotionally leaving. That was my family. Oh, and, I know. I can and understand. And finally, and through those five years or so that I hit real bottoms in a lot of ways, emotionally, spiritually, career, all of that, I felt there would come a time that people would realize that, you know, well, I, I accept responsibility for what was my responsibility and everything else is out of my control. Yeah. Eventually, the business went where it did. I ended up coming back and knowing that what I really, I, I tried different jobs and tried different operations, mm-hmm. tried to leave music, tried to do something with Broadway or film. Mm-hmm. I, my skill sets, I make it. I'm, I'm a, I make records. Right, right. I, I mean, I'm a creative guy in the record industry who knows how the machine works. Yeah, and you're also and, not only that, but you're, but there are a lot of people who make records, but there are very few, few people who actually were musicians well, at one point and, in their and, lives and the that funny, understand the funny, the funny thing about that the nuts and is, bolts. I mean, you know, I mean, I do all my own Melodyne and Pro Tools work and stuff, and I, I, and my ears are, I got, I got really good fucking ears. Because I'm a, still, my ears are better. I try to pick up the horn. I can't hit, stand it because I can hear how bad I sound. Gotcha. No, day. no, I dig it. I so dig my it. ears are really. I do. Attuned. I do it every day, and that's how I make <laughs> <my ears. laughs> my, my ears are really attuned to detail and pitch and all of that. Sure. But my knowledge, just over a lot of years in business of songs, of players, of musicians, and having worked with every musician I've ever loved in one way or another, just about, and then the studio was so many. And I ended up looking. I had to. I'm working with a management company now. I had to put together my discography. I hadn't done it in a while. Produced over a hundred records, and this is records, right? Top to bottom, sure, sure, albums. sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, and I'm not. I mean, it's like that happens hey, in man, business. It happens. Twenty five years in the yeah, biz, but yeah. but the point is that I started going. You know, wait a minute. This is what I do, and I do it diff. I'm not going to say I do it better than other people. I do it differently. Right. I sit with an artist and say, Who are you? Who's your audience? How do you define yourself? Where do you want to be in five years? How are we going to tell your story in a way that's going to reach a listener on a deep emotional level? For forty to fifty-five minutes, sure. And how are we going to create that work? Mm. And how are we going to take advantage of the understanding that live performance and recording are two very distinctly different art forms? It's like sculpture and painting, mm-hmm. and we're only painting. We can't sculpt. We only have this. Yeah. How are we going to do yeah, that? Yeah. And how are we going to take advantage of that control you can have in that setting to capture magic, and that control you can have in that setting to refine how that magic is listened to by the fan, mm, mm. you know? And how do you go about doing that? And and having the per- interpersonal relationship skills with the musicians, with the engineers, with the laborers, right. with the managers, right. to make those things happen. And I found that that's what my skill set is. So sink or swim, that's what I had to do, right. just become a record producer. And, and that's why... But like, how do you make that work in this day and age? Because another kind of 
angle angle of, of this kind of conversation show that that uh, Dorn and I have going is is really the continuum between people our age, the generation well, above us, and the generation below us. These kids well, that are in their twenties. What can you tell them? Because I always get asked, like, well, how? And I'm sure you and I have, have very different ideas about it, but I'm sure they also intersect in a lot of well, areas here, here, as well. Here's the thing. First of all, we'd have to do a whole other two right. hours. <laughs> well, give Seriously. me give me the okay. condensed version, just in terms of just a few bullet points, or or just like well, there there are two there are two things. First of all, there's records. Second of all, there's the music business. Okay? Sure. Um, in terms of the recording process, which is what I focus on as much as possible now, um, it's about documenting magic and passion. And it and always has been. Impact it always has been. Spirituality. Yeah. And all of our favorite records do that. Absolutely. And whether they're highly produced, very sheeny things like Steely Dan or... Live, Jamal, live at the Pershing. Jamal, live the Pershing. Yeah, yeah. Or in between that is, you know, Bill Withers. Sure. Okay? It's about making an emotional connection with the listener. Absolutely. And you don't know it probably don't know it as an artist as well as the right person to work with you. So most mm -hmm. artists need a producer. The challenge is who's that going to be and mm -hmm. who's, who's got the talent and the skill set and the experience and the people skills to actually do yeah. the job. And it's not even, I would say it's also expertise, which is something that you can only get over many, many years well, there's some, of, there's some of, of that. experience. There's some of that, but the question is what is the skill set and what's the expertise that's necessary for that specific gig? Okay. Right. I've had too much experience and expertise for some artists I've worked with. Right. It's gotten in the way. Yeah. So you yeah. you know, you need you as a producer don't need to know how to edit your move the bar a bit. You need to know what their parameters you are. You need to know what you're dealing with and most importantly focus in on what is going to move I say the same thing a million times a day. It's like how are you gonna yeah. move the listener on a deep emotional level and make a sticky connection with them that they're gonna right. be along for the ride. Right. So that piece of it, of making records, is very, very lost these days. Mm, because mm. budgets are down and people don't think they need producers or can't think they can't afford right, them. Right. I'm more than pay for myself in producing an album because I know how to make a record right. expediently and I know where right. to put the money to make it come out on the record yeah. in the right ways. So, But people think they can't afford a producer. The other piece is that there aren't they don't know how to find them and those people aren't necessarily there. So yeah. they hire an engineer friend or a musician friend. Right. Well, that musician's got a whole, they're a very limited set of what their right. view of what music right. is and their version of your music yeah. is going to be based on what they, it comes through their I, filter. I, I would produce filter, a record, but I would never produce a record that I played on. Right. I would right. never do that. But, but they, um, but I mean, unless that, it's my so, own record, so all the, I do is set up and play. So the, produ the producing know? thing is that's one thing and that right. we could talk for hours about sure. the art of production sure. and who's, what records move me and what I think records are great and what records aren't great and why. Um, the record business piece, which is where, where it's most important, where I feel so great is because, for example, Pledge Music. Right, okay, absolutely. This is the model of the future, whether we want to like it or, like it or not, or love it or not, or embrace it or not, this is the business going forward, period. Right. Period. Right. And it will change and it's exactly in the same, some way. It's exactly the same business that I got into in the beginning. Gotcha. It is the artist making a, more so. the artist making a connection with a fan, right? And what's the conduit to do that? It was a record business. It was a record company. Yeah. Now that conduit is directly direct from artist to fan. Yeah. And that conduit is a platform. In this case, it's it's pledge music. Right. It could be Kickstarter. And, and let me tell you something. Thing. But it's that direct to fan relationship. And I thing. have to say, just let me interject. 
I did the pledge music thing. Doug Womble was like, "Man, you got to try this thing." Where I was like, "Man, that's bullshit. What are you talking about? I'm not a. I'm not, I don't know. I don't make pizza, man." Blah blah blah. <laughs> Listen, I did it and I loved it. Well, and I've done it with Omaha Diner. I'm going to do it with Dion Ferris. I love it. I love the experience. I love telling people, "Hey," but because it makes me feel like I'm part here, of the community. Here's the trick about it. If if you're someone who thinks you're asking for a handout, change that perception. I don't. Or you're not going to work. Yeah, no. Okay. I don't. I don't. If you can handle direct relationship with your fans if you're the guy who signs cds after the show if you're the guy who spends as much time communicating with his fans as you do practicing your instrument but still not the expense of getting better and refining your craft you're going to be cool if you don't do that you better have a team of people that do that shit for you right or you will die in this business Uh, if you can do that and you're going to do that where you can be 10 years from now on a financial standpoint on a revenue stream generating standpoint is off the fucking charts because people with great music people will give you money the, the last thing i could say no i'm i thing, agree with you 100%, there's there's totally. when i was at blue note records the same year within a year we put out two records we put out um uh bonnie rate mick of time and mc hammer please hammer don't hurt him uh-huh into kind of time <laughs> sold four million copies please hammer don't hurt him sold 12 million copies mm-hmm. so it was a three to one ratio People who bought those records, people who bought Nick of Time, listen the whole record 30 times. Of course. People who, listen, who bought Please Have It Don't Hurt Him, listen to You Can't Touch This 30 times, the second single 10 times, the rest of the record five times. Mm-hmm. The impact of that music on the listener, whoever bought Nick of Time, got more impact from that music and that music per spin. Yeah. But, you know, meant more. But, so if the revenue was based on how much that made impact and how many times those songs were played... That would flip from from three to one MC Hammer to Bonnie Raitt to five to one Bonnie Raitt over MC Hammer. Yeah, we're in that world now. Exactly. A- and okay? Amen. And that means great music can. Yeah. Win. The other world we're in is when I was a, when I was a record collector. You talk about having one record to buy. I would scour the bins of the Wahoo Records in Ann Arbor and look everywhere. And finally, in Miami, Yardbird Records and all that shit. Going to record, you know, uh, fairs. I played that. in that store, Yardbird. Yardbird, really? Michael a, Dean, the I, guy, the I, I British pl- guy? Yeah, I played a uh, an in-store there. I'm well, pretty sure I did, So yeah. the, you, That was probably Blue, uh, Yardbird or Blue, whatever. The, the point oh, is, okay. there was a Ben Sidron record called um, uh, Free in America. He does New York State of Mind, Billy Joel's New York State of Mind, and it's got Woody Shaw playing a trumpet solo on it. Now, this record came and went and was out of print in no time. Sure. I knew about this record and had to find this record. I looked every time when I'd go to use record bin, I'd look through certain bins and I'd look at the Miles Davis yeah. and collect all my shit and then I'd always go to the various S and see if they had Ben Sidron in America. Uh-huh. Free in America. Finally, one day, Yardbird Records had it for $15. A promo copy on Arista Records. I paid $15 for that record. I brought it home. I got my Woody Shaw solo. Yeah. Woody Shaw solos were fifteen dollars to me. That yeah, fifteen dollars, yeah, sure. oh. seven fifty went to Michael Dean. Seven fifty went to the DJ who got the record for fucking free from the label, exactly. and the label didn't get a penny, and the exactly. artist didn't get a penny, Ben didn't exactly. get a penny, Woody Shaw didn't get a penny, and Billy Joel didn't get a fucking penny. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Today, if I love Woody Shaw in that way. That fifteen dollars would be in the hand of Woody Shaw the third. Exactly. No, and and, and I, I would be getting a bunch of fucking live Woody yeah, Shaw yeah. shit. Yeah, yeah. Because Woody Shaw is fifteen dollars to me. Yeah. And I would put that fifteen dollars on the line for Woody Shaw. That's today's business model. And if you learn, know it, and understand it, and if you understand the responsibility of developing a direct to fan relationship with people, and understanding that you're not, you know, asking them for money for anything, you are selling them a product that they want. 
Exactly. You are sell that experience exactly. yeah. is a product. Yeah. Visiting and the studio is an experience. Of course. You know, notes from the session are an experience. Uh, totally. And you know what? I feel like that's akin to in any historical shift, when you go from one system of governance to another, mm -hmm. there was, there's always a period in between generally referred to as an interregnum, right? Which is generally a very confusing period in between two different power the the uh, falling of one power group and the the rising of another. You right. had you have the famous interreg interregnum in England. I think in between the uh, Catholic kings and and Oliver Cromwell, right. there's an interregnum. You have the interregnum in between the monarchy and the and the French Revolution. You even have an interregnum here between the British and the American Revolution. So you, you have an interregnum between the falling of the Berlin Wall and what happens after mm -hmm. that, right? So I feel like what's happened in the last 10 or 15 years has been a really big interregnum with all of these very confusing things going on where nobody really knows which path to follow. Nobody knows what is going to be the paradigm. Nobody knows what's going to be the power structure. And I have my mantra for the, for the last years has been the good news and the bad news are the same. There are no gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. And, but it's starting to be the good news because now you're starting to see this fan to artist relationship that's just fantastic. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's informing the music, but not in a bossy way on the part of the fans. It's a very positive community building thing. Well, you're, you're able to immediately respond to how you've moved your audience emotionally. Yeah. You're actually, yeah, you're actually having a direct response there's a cause and effect that you can gauge immediately absolutely, absolutely. there's no yeah, you know yeah. the gatekeeper thing there will always be gatekeepers and tastemakers but now it's a million of them and, right. and your goal the great thing about a direct fan relationship is that those are your gatekeepers yeah each of them are telling their friends and they to tell friends tell two friends and it's like right. a freaking com shampoo commercial right yeah no doubt that's no. what this world is now and that's beautiful yeah. and it and the pressure on you as an artist is make great records that have that connect with people and record in that way because that's going to be your calling card. They're not going to be at the gigs. You're talking about expanding your audience to get to the gigs. The people right, who end right. up going to the gigs, in some cases, they don't know you yet and they're checking out something new. But that recording is going to be your calling card to yeah. expand your audience. So the importance of making a great recording that really puts you front and center what you have to offer emotionally is essential. The other piece of mining those relationships is on your ass. Mm. That is your job as right? much as anything. Yeah, And so, it's easier. If you've got opinion, the personality for it, it's easier. If, you know. Yeah. I got I to go. You are the man, Matt Pearson. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. It's a pleasure <laughs> to talk to you. Sorry if I talk too much. I love it. Don't we'll worry, do it Adam's going to chop it and slice it and dice it like Just he always does. Just keep all the good shit where I sound like I'm smart.